Hey friends, I'm Brian Doak and this is George Fox Talks Theology. This season on the Theology Channel, we are going to do a new thing. Instead of being here in the studio, which we are for most of our episodes, as you know, we're going to bring you live theology events from the campus of George Fox University. Some of these might be planned lectures in the evenings and some of these might be a classroom environment um, where we're teaching our students about scripture. But whatever the case, you got to imagine yourself in a live setting with an audience there. And if you're watching these, of course, on YouTube, you can see it. And if you're listening, you can think about it and, pl and place yourself right there in the seat of that audience. Really excited for these because they're all so good. We hope you enjoy. Well, we're going to kick it off today by hearing from Mary Jo Sharp, and I am so intrigued and fascinating by her story and her ministry and just her journey of faith and doubt, deconstruction and reconstruction. Uh, many of you know uh, her story and her background, but if you don't, uh, she is an assistant professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University, the founder of Cr Confident Christianity Apologetics Ministry ministry and the director of content for the new modern teen apologetic series, Darkroom. Uh, she's the author of the Zondervan book, Why I Still Believe, a former atheist reckoning with the bad reputation Christians give a good God. And <laughs> that's a great subtitle. And the Lifeway Bible study, Why Do You Still Believe That? She's an itinerant speaker on apologetics and is engaged in formal debates on Islam, and she focuses on using love and logic to uncover truth. So let's welcome Mary Jo Sharp to the stage. All right. Good morning. get everything all set up here. All right, well, I, I used to be an atheist. We're going to move this for now. And uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't like a, you know, angry, hostile atheist. Um, I was a just not raised in church kind of atheist. And I, I make that caveat because sometimes atheists tell me like, were you really atheist? And I'm like, nah, I wasn't reading Nietzsche or Russell or anything and like framing my life around it. I was just raised outside of church, um, and I was raised in uh, the Portland, Oregon area, um, which historically has been, traditionally has had less religious participation than a lot of places in the United States in particular. And uh, I saw that when I went off to college and um, in the South. I followed the band director from the University of Oregon to the University of Oklahoma, and I saw a very different culture. I saw a lot of cultural Christianity that I did not experience growing up. So it was just a very different uh, upbringing and culture. And so my background is atheist. And though I wasn't, I wasn't raised in a Christian setting, what I was raised with was a father and mother who loved um, nature and science. They loved the arts. My dad was a huge Carl Sagan fan, and he loved anything that had to do with cosmology. He used to wake me up in the middle of the night and like get me get me up so I could see a meteor shower. You know, it didn't matter if it was a school day. We we're watching that. So that was my dad, and he was also a musician. Um, I'm a musician as well, and so. Um, there's just this sense of the arts in our family about you know, the beauty that we could create as human beings. 
And so I was really, I began in my like later teenage years to really be drawn to the, um, the just the beauty, goodness that I saw in the world. Uh, living in the Pacific Northwest, it, it's there's like the Pacific Ocean. It was just awe-inspiring. And so as I got, and, oh, well, and my parents were huge Shakespeare fans. I can't leave that out because you can't watch a Shakespeare play without having like questions of the meaning of life thrown at you. So like all of this was combining as I got older to really make me question, what is this all for? You know, is Carl Sagan's pale blue dot, are we just a speck of dust in a vast and different universe and then we're gone? Is that all there is? So if that's the case, what is all of this music and art and you know, this apparent design and things that I'm seeing in the universe in which I live, like what does this all mean? just nothing, and it didn't make sense to me, and I was starting to search for those questions, or answers to those questions. Well, I was in a band program with a gentleman who was a Christian, and he hadn't shared his faith before, and he was very nervous about sharing his faith with a public school student, but he just couldn't get past this overwhelming burden for me. And so my senior year of high school, he did share his faith with me. He gave me a Bible, and he said, when you go off to college, you're going to have hard questions. I hope you'll turn to this. Uh, and he tells me he prayed with me, which I didn't remember. And he also tells me that I didn't have the best reaction to him, <laughs> which I also don't remember. <laughs> but he, he said he was nervous <laughs> about the whole situation. But he hit me at just the right time. Like I had those questions. I trusted him. I respected him. I actually went off to um, the University of Oklahoma to study music. Uh, I wanted to teach it. You know, like he taught music because I, he was such an impact in my life. So I did go off to college and I started investigating Christianity on my own. And I actually became a Christian in college. Uh, I mentioned a little bit of this last night if you were here, just a little teeny bit. But I met my husband in college and I met Jesus in college. And this was a really, I, I would say this was an emotionally messy time for me because I was a young college student. I um, got married young, and I was a new mother. I was a young mother um, when I found Jesus. And this was, so this was very emotional time in my life. Um, I had this like joy of salvation that I've, I've been thinking on these questions of meaning and purpose and value. Uh, I've been looking at the universe in awe and wonder, and, and the Bible and Jesus sort of all brought this together for me. So I had that joy of like that commitment that was coming to the end of this journey, but I was nervous about what people would think of me uh, in the church because I had no experience in that particular church culture or any church culture, honestly, other than what I saw on TV and the movies. So <laughs> that's not too good. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't know what um, the church would think of me. Well, my first Sunday uh, after I accepted Jesus, and it was one of those little churches where you, you uh, are supposed to walk the aisle Right? And you're supposed to go up front and profess to the whole church that you'd found Jesus. And then they all come up afterwards and they shake your hand like the whole church lines up. And yeah, you're welcome. That's already odd to me, okay, because I grew up here. Uh, and uh, I wasn't, not just that we don't do stuff like that. I just wasn't in church. So I didn't know any of this. So I go, that first Sunday, I get to the church um, with my husband, who's a born and raised Southern Baptist from a small town in Oklahoma. <laughs> uh, we're going to church. I'm nervous uh, about the whole endeavor. I'm wondering what the people back home are going to think of this. I'm wondering what this church is going to think of me. 
So much so that I'm even fussing over like, what dress do I wear? I own two dresses. Like I was, <laughs> I'm like, I'm asking my husband, is this good? Like, am I good? And he's like, yes, you look fine. Um, we get to the church and we walk in and the uh, pastor's wife is there at the doors of the sanctuary and she's greeting everybody, smiling, you know, having a good time, asking them how their families are. And we walk up and the very first thing she does, she smiles, then her smile drops and she goes, oh, honey, we need to find you better clothes. The very first thing she says to me. So um, now I have to go in in front of the whole congregation, apparently dressed inappropriately. I'm already nervous. So um, I've been reading in, in the Bible and, and very attracted to Christianity out of the teachings of Paul and Jesus about like, there's no condemnation in Christ and you know, the kind of love and <laughs> that Christians have for one another. And I was really excited to be a part of that community. And the first thing I'm greeted with is like judgment and condemnation. So, and that was just the beginning. Um, my husband and I got involved in ministry, and my ministry experience was much worse, um, much, much worse. I saw so much more um, and so much worse by people who profess to believe in God as the perfectly good creator of the universe and that they are accountable to, and they are supposed to be transforming their lives into formation in him, you know, Christ-likeness. In fact, my experience in church was so bad at times and so opposite to what I was reading in the Bible that it made me wonder, do Christians actually believe this? Do they actually believe this is true? How could people who profess God's truth completely ignore its teaching or do exactly the opposite of what the Bible tells them they should do? So I went through a time of very serious doubt um, and wanting to leave Christianity, wanting to get away. So my relationship with Christianity has been a bit rocky um, and with the church. The tension between what drew me to faith and then what I found in the church really threw me. So I, I've had to work through some reasons for why, why did I stay, right? Why did I stay when people are walking away from the faith? And uh, part of that journey was indeed finding answers to my questions. And if you look at some of my old apologetics videos, you'll see me saying, yeah, you gotta get, you gotta get answers to your doubts. But what I wasn't addressing is the other part of the journey, which was that I had, there were some attitudes and desires and motives that I was bringing into the journey, uh, into this intellectual journey that I wasn't necessarily acknowledging. So we're gonna talk a bit about that today. Um, we're gonna look at three attitudes in the faith journey that can help or hinder along the way. And you'll see these over and over, but so the three attitudes are to be skeptical, be realistic, and be hopeful. So the first one is be skeptical, not cynical. So being skeptical often gets a bad rap within the evangelical Christianity. And I know from my experiences in the church when I would ask questions, well, why is that? Or why would he say that? Or why is this the case? Um, I would get really trite answers to those questions, um, or I would get sort of blown off. Uh, and I had a hard time over the years asking any kind of questions at all because I was a pastor's wife. Um, he wasn't senior pastor. He's sitting in the back room or standing back there. He was a worship pastor, youth minister. You've been an associate pastor, a pastor of spiritual formation. What haven't you been? <laughs> oh, lead, lead pastor. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
So um, yeah, it was hard. It was hard to ask those questions. But what I've discovered is that being skeptical, it means to be a person who is cautious of just accepting anything that anyone tells you to believe. And I've discovered the Bible actually affirms healthy skepticism. The Bible affirms a healthy skepticism. So I'm going to throw some scripture at you like a Bible drill. However, Proverbs is a good place to, if you want to have fuller context. So Proverbs 18:17 tells us that the one who states his case first seems right until another comes along and examines him. Right? And there's a bunch of Proverbs passages like this about wisdom and knowledge. I would highly recommend just going through that. Paul, in teaching to the Ephesians, um, he tells them that we're given teachers and apostles, and he lists a whole bunch of different kinds of people amongst the community of Christ. And he says the reason is this for all of these people is so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or by human cunning or by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So he's telling them we're supposed to grow up in our knowledge Right, along the way, so that we are not blown around by everything we hear. And Paul, what I love about him is he does not even excuse himself from his own teaching. In Acts 17, Luke reports that after Paul preached to the Bereans, Paul noted that they were of more noble character because they went and checked out what he was teaching. And, he, and he's acknowledging that and saying that's a really good thing. You should check out what people are teaching you. And then, of course, um, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul addressing things you hear in the church, prophecies in the church. He says, test everything, hold on to the good. So the Bible is skepticism affirming, a good, healthy skepticism. It affirms that. And a proper skepticism, such as you're seeing in these passages, helps us grow into mature believers, better thinkers, more um, constructively critical But an unhealthy skepticism can become cynicism. Whereas the unhealthy skeptic just doesn't believe anything anybody tells them, uh, they fact check, they look for evidence. The unhealthy skeptic, the cynic, and I'm not using cynic in the proper philosophical sense. I'm using cynic as a person who typically moves away from questioning beliefs and arguments into questioning everyone's motives. Cynics have a tendency to distrust people, believing that people are, they do things out of self-interest, so they're only uh, interested in themselves, or you might say they're contemptuously distrustful of human nature and motives. So a cynic tends to judge the argument, idea, or belief before exploring evidences and reasons in any objective way. Or they tend to have such an unrealistic set of criteria that their standard for belief could never be answered. It could never be matched. We actually find what might be some potential instances of cynicism in the Bible, although it's charged with some other issues going on. You see this in the religious leaders uh, that Jesus is combating when Jesus is talking with them. And they say things like, if you're the Christ, just tell us. And Jesus, after having, they say this after having seen Jesus or heard reports of Jesus doing all these miracles, the miracles of the Messiah. And he says to them in response, if I tell you, you will not believe. 
Okay, Luke twenty two sixty seven. So cynicism is problematic uh, because it's going to set us, uh, um, it, it robs us, it robs us of the ability to trust and believe anything at all. I actually believe cynicism, whereas the person who's a cynic thinks that they're open-minded because they're asking a lot of questions and they don't land anywhere, but they keep questioning and questioning. I think it's closed-minded because you can never land on anything. It keeps you from proper belief. I don't think they have a more objective view. I think they have a less objective view, having fallen prey to unhealthy skepticism. So uh, there's the author, Daniel Taylor, um, academic Christian, who he wrote this book called The Skeptical Believer, Telling Stories to Your Inner Atheist. <laughs> I love that. Uh, <laughs> So he's like, well, how do you check your skepticism from becoming like cynicism? And he says, well, be as skeptical about skepticism as skepticism is about everything else. So question your motive for questioning. What has caused this? What has brought this up in your life? Why, is it, why now? Why is this coming up? Taylor notes that if you consider yourself a skeptic, then consider what a good answer might look like to your question. And he says, if all you will accept is certainty, no possibility of being wrong, then you're not being honest about the human condition. And I like that he says, a good answer will probably call you to something higher, better, or cause you to change. And I think that's part of the problem there, latent in cynicism. It kind of moves the control out of your control. Sorry, that meant being skeptical, not cynical, would move the control away from you. All right, so this is one of the difficulties of skepticism in general, is what's the motive behind it, the motive issue? And really doing some self-reflection on why, is this, why am I having this question, that's hard. That's a hard one position to really get to the truth of that. Um, and it's one that I had to work through. As I mentioned early on, I had, um, when I would say, well, I just had doubt, and I need to get answers to my doubt. That was not true. Uh, what was going on was a, a bunch of things. I was hurt by the church. I had had really painful experiences over years of observations of how Christians were behaving. And it didn't make sense to me. Um, and so I was, I was probably angry. No, I was angry. Let's remove probably. I was angry <laughs> that what I hoped to find was not what I was finding. Um, so there was desire in there. Uh, there was a motive. And there, were mo there was a motive that was potentially pushing me towards being a cynic rather than being uh, a healthy skeptic. I realized that I had to be open to considering something as true, something that might change my beliefs or worldview. So I had to tell my inner atheist that believing is a good thing. It's not a fault. So that was my first... The first attitude that I had to check was that being skeptical, not cynical. The second attitude is to be realistic, not unrealistic. So I brought into the church with me this grand set of expectations. I had been drawn to the church because of that great beauty and goodness and also the truth that I saw uh, about issues like good and evil. Uh, I had a real strong sense of justice and injustice. And so these were the things that I, themes I saw in the Bible that were very attractive. Um, 
So I sort of packed up scriptures like these ones into my mental backpack. Like I had these on tap. This is what the church was going to adhere to, right? They were going to... They were going to love like Jesus loved them. They were going to um, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. They would actually, in humility, think of others as better than themselves. And uh, that last one, James 1, that they would keep a tight rein on their tongue. Otherwise, their professed religion is worthless. Yeah, that one would probably knock me out right now. <laughs> but it was... I, I, that was what I was expecting to find, a community of people who were committed to this. So I packed these into my mental backpack. I took them into the church with me, and I thought I could learn from this community to grow into the Christian that I wanted to be. As a result, um, these sort of unrealistic expectations that I had about humans in general <laughs> um, really threw me when I encountered self-focused, self-righteous, judgmental people in the church, because uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't really ready to encounter that. Um, that wasn't what I expected, as I said. So I see now that I began to doubt, not just out of failures on the behalf of the human beings in the church, but also so that they failed to meet my expectations, but also that I had these spectacularly unrealistic expectations of what I would find in the church, in the humans in the church. I discovered that people in the church were just regular people. <laughs> and it was heartbreaking. <laughs> oh, man, I was so disappointed. Um, <laughs> I need a little more Shakespeare in my life. <laughs> people are just people. Um, so I needed a perspective on that. And as I was studying apologetics, I came across the problem of evil, um, which is, I'm, I'm not going to be able to sum it up in 30 seconds well, because it's the quintessential philosophical theological question of the ages, and it's been, we've been writing about it for thousands of years. It goes back even before Christianity. Uh, so... During my search for answers to doubt, this argument really helped me gain perspective. Um, and it's that question of if God's good, why is there evil in the world? So I'm going to give you like my very short version of this. And it is, if those of you who have studied this, it is one version of the answer to the problem of evil. But I discovered that when God made us in his own image, one of the areas we have a reflection of him is in the freedom we have to make real choice with real consequence. We can affect our surroundings. We can affect the world in which we live. That is a good gift. That's one of the good gifts of the Father is to reflect him in that sort of freedom to choose. We can use that gift to love greatly, unconditionally. We can use that gift to do amazing works. But we have also used that gift to do great evil. Um, we have used that gift to do things that the Bible would call sin. I, I'm going to use the word evil there in its place. The consequence of a choice to do something not good in this world is that it is destructive in some way. It's not the way that we're supposed to interact with our world. And then the Bible communicates to us the ultimate destruction, the ultimate consequence of evil is death. So you have Romans um, 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So... What this problem taught me was that people in the church are human beings who will fail me in every way possible. They will. They'll fail me in every way possible. That's what people do. 
That's what is happening in this life. And it taught me um, that I will do that as well. I will fail everybody around me. We use our good gift of freedom in ways that are destructive. Uh, these are small, we do it in small ways and we do it in really large ways. And the other thing that I've kind of discovered along the way is there are people who do amazing and incredible good but are also doing horrific evil. It's not a, you're either really good or you're bad. Uh, a lot of times our, our uh, stories and our narratives that we watch on TV, they kind of like to set up the bad guy as the bad guy. Um, but sometimes you get that hint of, yeah, you can do great evil and, whoops, evil was over here. You can do great evil and great good. So this is why everyone needs a savior because none of us escape doing evil. And that's in Romans as well. There is no one who does good, not even one. So I also learned that people are going to be this way in church community or outside of church community, whether they're Christian or not. You know, it's going to happen at the local Baptist church, but it's also going to happen at the local atheist donut eating society. You're going to have all the same kinds of issues because these are people in there. So I, asked, I had to ask, well, what, what do I do? Okay, now I know that. I've got the theory, but what do I do with this knowledge? I don't have to guess because Jesus actually taught on this. Oh, I'm a little behind on my own slide. There we go. Okay, so he taught in, in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. And if you read through that whole passage, he actually teaches what good is it if you only do good to the people who are doing good to you. Yeah. That's the teachings of the world. That was what his, the religious leaders were teaching. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Matthew 5, 43 tells us that. That's the setup to Luke 6. Uh, Jesus is teaching here in Luke 6. So he's flipping that. Because that's worldly. And if you, I, I started to think about that. If I only did good to the people who did good to me, I would do no good. Because everyone sins. Everyone does evil. And uh, every day. What was that old Billy Graham phrase? Like, how many, how many times a day do you sin? And I think he had like it down to seconds. Like a, once every couple of seconds. So don't conform to the ways of the world of only doing good to the people who do good to you. I love what G.K. Chesterton says on this. He's so snarky. If you haven't read Chesterton, he's a real fun read. Um, he says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they are generally the same people. <laughs> good job, Chesterton. Um, so... I can choose God's goodness in spite of those who would hurt me. And that's more realistic than wishing everyone would do the right thing. And so it allows me not to be controlled by the evil in the world. I mean, I'm still going to do wrong, but I don't have to be controlled by this. I don't have to be reactive to everything. I can attempt to live in that freedom that God meant for me, even if there's still some jerks in Christianity. In fact, if I had been paying attention to Matthew 23 pretty much the whole chapter, 
Jesus actually said, do what the religious teachers teach, but not what they do. Because they do not practice what they preach. <laughs> he just blatantly said it right there. I kind of missed that part when I was loading up all those passages. So uh, perhaps we can adjust our expectations to be more realistic of the kind of situation that we're in with other human beings in this world. We can adjust our expectations um, and so that as we're on our faith journey, we don't forget the problem of evil. And that's very real in this world. And the last one is to be hopeful, not hopeless. I'm still kind of working on that titling of it. But as I, as I considered my own state, miserable state in the church, and I know I only shared with you the story about the dress. There's a lot of other stuff. And you've seen a lot of other stuff in the media lately. Um, but as I considered, like, I don't really, I don't even know if I want this to be true anymore because I kind of like my atheist friends better. Um, and this community is really hard to be a part of with all the different personalities and ways of being. Um, I had to take a second to deeply, deeply reflect on a life without God or without Christianity, Christianity at all. And so I was thinking, well, what's waiting for me in atheism? What is back over there in an atheistic framework? So to step away from Christianity is actually to accept a very different view of the world uh, and of your fellow human beings. It's a very different view. So I'm going li- to limit my look here to what I would have gone back to, which was an a- atheism that, in which there's physical matter is all that exists. That's what I would have reverted back to. There's no spiritual anything. Um, what happens to the view of humans and all that goes with them when you reduce the universe to nothing but physical matter? I don't have to guess because Richard Dawkins and, in fact, Bertrand Russell, they both wrote on this sort of matter. And this is what he says in River Out of Eden. So in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. And he says the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Now, I'm not a biologist, so I don't want to offend anybody who is. So I deal in philosophy. So I'm going to unpack this in a philosophical sense. What happens, or I'll do it for me. I had to work through this. What does this mean for me? Well, it means that there is no plan. There's no rhyme or reason at all. This is just part of the ever-evolving universe. So at the base would be chance. That means there's no justice. So all this indignation, this anger that I fear, uh, feel at people being mistreated in this world, that may have some relative importance here and now for my situation, which I live, or maybe in history for when they live, but it ultimately has no basis. There's no grounding for that. Um, everything we see is just what we should expect when there's no good or evil in the universe. And he says blind processes. What he's saying is there's no intentionality to anything. 
So uh, this was fun for me because when I was a kid growing up, we used to watch these nature films, and they were actually films on the reels. So aging myself um, in class, like at school. And in those films, they always personified nature. It was mother nature. Nature provides. Nature, and it was X, Y, and Z, personified, personified. It gave nature personhood. Dawkins is telling us very clearly there's no personhood there. Nature is not intending or purposing anything. Okay? It's just marching forward. Um, they don't care about you or me, these blind processes, and you are not intended to go anywhere nor purposed. So we are, this is random mutation in accordance with environmental factors. That means we have no ultimate responsibility, ultimate, no real choices in the end, and no real consequence for that. As he says, DNA neither knows nor cares. It just is, and we're dancing to its music. That's a poetic way of saying um, that you do what you do because of your physical makeup, your genetic properties. OK, now what is so deeply disturbing to me about Dawkins' view? It communicates hopelessness. He's saying the world is just the way we should expect it to be. There's nothing wrong. Um, but if everything is just as it's supposed to be, there's no real reason for redemption, forgiveness, second chances. In fact, the Guardian uh, journalist, Julian Baggini out of the UK, he says our lives can go horribly wrong in ways that can never be put right. And then I started thinking about this more and more, like probably some night I should have gone to bed earlier. And I, and I thought, think about this. We humans got stuck here in the universe with a randomly evolved ability to think about meaning, purpose, and value in a universe in which there is, at base, none to be found. We are stuck here thinking there's a way things should be, because we use that language all the time, uh, that there's a right and wrong in a universe in which there is no right and wrong. And I think if you go back a little ways to those atheist writers of the earlier 1900s and late 1800s, you start to find that they display the angst of a purposeless universe. So I had to ask myself some questions about that. Do I believe good and evil are non-existent? and that the world is just as I should expect it to be. Is this it? Do I believe humans are just a collection of physical matter? That ultimately, though there's some relative intention and purpose and things that we can do here and now, but ultimately there is no meaning, intention, purpose, value to their lives. Do I believe that DNA just is, and we dance to its music. We are slaves to our genetic makeup without any true freedom of choice, will, or thought. As I considered that, I thought, no, I don't believe that, but I never have. I never have. Not even when I was atheist, I didn't believe that. Um, but I can't have it both ways. So I can't walk away from Christianity and retain the Christian philosophical framework. 
Can't walk away from Christianity but retain the Christian philosophical framework because there are different frameworks going on here. And that framework entails that humans are made in the image of God with a real ability to make free choices that have real consequence. That our lives have meaning from our choices, but also from God's intention to create. He already purposed us. I can't walk away from the framework that says something's wrong in the world. The world isn't the way it's supposed to be, nor the way it originally was. And so it's not the way it always has to be or will be. This framework, this Christian framework, provides a basis for real hope, for grounding that hope somewhere, and not just being sort of an optimism, a human optimism, but actually saying, no, you're right in your thinking. There's a way things should be. You were intended for good. You're intended for relationship with God. There's, a, there's human flourishing. That's real hope. So my experiences in the church over time, they caused me to doubt uh, my belief in God, and actually I desired to walk away. And my deconstruction was I was looking for any debates from atheists or any articles um, where I could like, maybe pick it apart and say, aha, I knew you guys were wrong. Look how strong these arguments are over here. Uh, and I just didn't find that. Uh, as I got deeper and deeper into these uh, debates and arguments, that is not what I found. And I was actually, again, I was sad. I was heartbroken. <laughs> like, I could just walk away and say Christians are all deceived and they're just in anti-intellectual and they're just, you know, they've been bamboozled. And I, I finally figured it out. Yay, I'm free. <laughs> and that is not what happened. <laughs> and I remember one conversation I had with my husband on this matter. And I said, um, uh, I told him, I was like, hey, if, if we ever get into a healthy church situation, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? What do you mean, Joe? He calls me Joe. What do you mean, Joe? I said, well, I've lived so long in this sort of defensive posture against the church that I don't really know how to trust people who might actually be trustworthy. And I don't know what it would take for me to trust again. And, and I didn't even know if I wanted to trust anymore, and that included God. So, I, and I have come across in my experiences talking to people, there are people out there who are believers in God, but do not trust him. <laughs> and I think I was caught in that as well. I know you're there, but do I really trust you? And I didn't actually know if I wanted my doubts answered in a way that would point me back to community with other believers. Because that meant I couldn't be free of the church. So I had to consider, was I skeptical or had I become a cynic? Was I realistic or were my expectations unrealistic? And if I was still hopeful, why? Why was I hopeful for my situation, for the church, or for mankind? The answers I found, uh, and you're going to hear some more of those today, um, the answers I found through apologetics, these arguments about origin of the universe, resurrection of Jesus, um, design in the universe, all of these arguments, they help me not only answer my questions, but understand that other part that I had come to distrust uh, based in some of the experiences I had in the church. That it wasn't actually, you know, the behaviors of the Christians were not 
that's human nature. The truth of Christianity, I had to investigate that. Part of that was, do I trust God? And has he shown me he's trustworthy? And as I went through those apologetic arguments, especially evidence for the resurrection, yes, God, in the history of mankind, God has shown over and over that he is worthy of my trust. I don't always feel like trusting him. I know he's worthy of it and that I could place it there. So what I'm doing now, because I didn't really answer that, and I'm, I'm going to quickly wrap up here. What I'm doing now, I'm, I'm a Star Wars and a Lord of the Rings fan, so I'm going to go both ways for both of you. Okay. <laughs> All of you. I don't know that everybody in here likes those, but if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I sort of, I tell people I Gandalf the situation. I'm sort of roaming the earth trying to do good. I know the people around me are going to do dumb things. <laughs> I mean, Gandalf himself, did he do anything dumb? I don't know. I know I am going to. Uh, so I'll get to that one on my other example. But I try to Gandalf things. Do good, no matter what, because it's good. Oh, and uh, Samwise Gamgee, right? There's some good in this world, Frodo. It's worth fighting for. Okay. <laughs> Over here for Star Wars, I try to Obi-Wan the situation. The people I love the most are the ones that are going to hurt me the most. Right? Anakin Skywalker. Uh, they're going to do, they're capable of great, great works, but they end up doing great evil at times. Um, so I try to do what my master taught me no matter what. I try to stay, I'm going to mess up. I'm sure Obi-Wan did. Well, he did. <laughs> Get into all the fan stuff. Anyway, but I, try to, I try to Obi-Wan it. So what that has brought me to is this understanding. I'm a questioner, and that's okay. I'm idealistic, and Jesus is the one who I can idealize. Right? Not the people in the church. Not anybody. They're going to fall. I have always been full of hope for mankind. Always. And Christianity provides me a grounding for that. I'm free to investigate my beliefs, challenge poor reasoning, and love my neighbor as myself as I continue to find my own story in the gospel. And as a result, I better understand God, his purpose, and my faith. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.